We've been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Back with Dr. Alan Finister. Uh, doctor, welcome back. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. So we're tackling me. the second, third, and fourth Lateran councils, correct? That's right. Um, so uh, yeah, somebody was um, somebody was asking me the other day about uh, about how important Vatican II is. Never heard. Of it. Ob <laughs> objectively, how important it is, and uh, so I got to thinking about this and. Um, uh, and I was thinking, well, you know, councils, what do they do? They legislate for the whole church and they define doctrines and they define doctrines on two different levels. Uh, there's like stuff that they define as divinely revealed. So that if you deny it, you're a heretic. And then the stuff that they infallibly define, but they don't say is divinely revealed. So that either means it is, but they didn't say it, or it means that, um, it isn't, but they can, you can still infallibly define it. So there's this thing called the primary object of the magisterium which is stuff that jesus or or, or the you know, moses directly revealed or the apostles um and uh, and then there's um and then there's stuff which is um yeah that, that logically follows mm -hmm. from that but we're also including some truth of natural reason that's certain um so like you get a syllogism with one premise is from certain premise of natural reason, so not some kind of natural scientific thing, but you know, two plus two equals four right. or something, um, and um, or something, and then something which is revealed, and you get a consequence of that, or you get something which is what's called a dogmatic fact, which is some, um, uh, which is like the invalidity of Anglican orders, uh, the legitimacy of an ecumenical council. Um, Let's think. Um, what's the other famous one? Oh, canonizations is a big dispute about whether canonizations are infallible or not. But I mean, um, but uh, it's it's the majority of of sensible theologians. But only the majority of sensible theologians. There are sensible theologians who disagree as well. Uh, hold that um, that uh, yeah, that, that canonizations are infallible. But anyway, these are dogmatic facts, right? Mm. And um, uh, and they can be infallibly defined. But you're not a heretic for denying them. So, um, so I thought, well, you can, so basically you can, you can bracket councils by, uh, top, the top ones are the ones which define dogmas, uh, define secondary object material, as it were, um, doctrines that aren't dogmas, um, uh, and legislate for the whole church, right? That, those, that would be like, they tick all the boxes. Mm -hmm. And then you get some which only define dogmas, 
or define stuff, including dogmas, but don't do any disciplinary stuff. And then you get stuff that only does disciplinary stuff uh, and doesn't define any doctrines. Um, and then you, Vatican II, I think, is the only one which um, defines stuff belonging to the secondary object of the magisterium, but doesn't define any dogmas and doesn't do any disciplinary stuff. So it's in a really strange position. Um, it's the only one that's like that. So, so, um, so it, it said lots of things about what um, what should be done in the church in regard to discipline after the council, but it didn't actually issue canons. So, in that, so in that sense, it just like laid down guidelines, um, and then the Pope kind of ran with it and didn't necessarily always. Uh, well, anyway, yes, I'm going to that repeated and get some confused, things but... in the past and. All of a sudden, it uh, somehow teachings came out of it. Well, uh, something like that. Um, but uh, but the yeah. So so I mean, what Vatican II does do is it issues loads of this stuff called authentic teaching, which is mm -hmm. is what most papal encyclicals are. Um, that they're, they're kind of like the Pope's not using his in power of infallibility. He's just teaching, and mm -hmm. so he enjoys this really strong presumption of reliability because it's. It's the Pope who's teaching in an authoritative way, but he's not using his defining power, so it doesn't tick all the boxes for infallibility. So it gets called authentic papal magisterium, and the council, councils can do that as well. But it's rarer, but, but not in the case of Vatican II. There's absolutely vast reams of authentic teaching, but it's not definitive. But there are some things where I, I certainly would argue, and not that theologians would argue, um, are, are definitive teaching, but they're not dogmas. And Paul VI specifically said that Vatican II didn't issue any dogmas. Uh, I mean, it did, it did define some stuff that had already been defined, like it repeated papal infallibility. So I suppose those are technically dogmas, but it didn't do any new dogmas. All the other stuff that it defined was only doctrinal. Probably been done. But it wasn't, but so there is, and it's not controversial stuff. I mean, the only thing that, that's definitive and is controversial is, this, is the thing on religious liberty, but we'll get into that when we get to Vatican II, which is a long way away. But the reason why I bring this up is because um, uh, Lateran II and Lateran III don't, they only issue canons, right? There's, there's no real doctrinal stuff in there. Um, there's like implied teaching in the canons, but there's no, there's no, dogmatic or, or defining canons it's all it's all canon law so that might make them sound as if they're not very important but that's probably slightly misleading to think that they're not very important so so i'd say they are down the bottom of the league um in terms of the hierarchy of ecumenical councils but but they're still jolly important for their own reasons now, um, what you've got to understand is uh, the period that we're looking at with Lateran 2, 3, and 4 is now I, I, what I said about not being that important does not apply to Lateran 4. I should, you know, in case anyone gets the wrong end of the stick, Lateran 4 is, ticks all the boxes and is a mega council. So we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. But, um, uh, but the, um, they're, they're in a period known as the High Middle Ages. So um, there's this great, uh, great historian I mentioned before, medieval historian called R.W. Southern, who um, who defined the Middle Ages as the period during which the church was identified with the whole of organized society. And um, so it's, it's like the integralist period in, in, in which there's this soul body union of the whole of Western society with the church. And, um, and, and that kind of reaches its highest intensity in the period that these councils occurred. And so I'd say that in a way, the, the legal the legal basis for it is kind of is 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 fundamentally set up 
by the coronation of Charlemagne. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the things that happened, you know, earlier things like Justinian's law code and, and Theodosius's edict all the way back in the fourth century. But all the kind of apparatus is kind of being, is, is kind of the, the essential elements, the apparatus legally for this identification is set up by the coronation of Charlemagne. But then we've got this, that big gap that we talked about where, where everything goes chaotic in the West for ages. And then the Gregorian reform movement kicks off, which we talked about last time. And the Gregorian reform movement is what really, you know, achieves in, 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 in society the, this really intense identification. And in some ways, you could have said that before that, Byzantium was the Byzantine Empire, the surviving Roman Empire in the East. The, the, the identification was, was in some ways more intense there than it was in the West in some ways. But, but because things had gone so badly and it had been so difficult in the West because of the Germanic barbarian invasions, of course, I mean, it had been worse in the East in the sense that, you know, a lot of people end up being ruled by Islam. But I mean, if you were, if you were the half of the East that didn't end up being ruled by Islam, then you were still just carrying on with the Roman Christian Empire. So for a long time in the East, this kind of identification was more intense. But because things were so bad in the West in terms of the barbarian in rampage and then, and then the, the round two of the rampage with the Vikings and the collapse of, of, of Charlemagne's empire, the, 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 the ecclesiastical hierarchy and, and the monks had been able to rebuild Western society from the ground up. And, and, and that becomes much, much more intense with the start of the Gregorian reform movement in uh, 1048. And uh, so, so, so from that, so in a way, 1048 and the, the, or 1049 and the election, so it's 48, he's nominated, 49, he's formally elected, St. Leo IX, is the beginning of this, re- of this really intense period of the High Middle Ages. And, uh, and he, um, and of course, only just after that, just a few years after that, still in the, well, actually just after Leo IX's death, in uh, in um, 1054, you have the um, the sort of nominal moment of schism between Byzantium and the West, and that makes the although although the popes are obsessed and the Middle Ages are partly defined by the fact that they're trying to reverse that, um, uh, you know, largely through the Crusades, which are an attempt to rescue the Byzantines and and, and end the Great Schism. That's the original plan behind the Crusades. Um, and, and many of the councils in the Middle Ages are too particularly in the later Middle Ages are, are very fixed on trying to end the Great Schism so that they're not okay with this schism but because it leads to the effective uh, temporary identification of the church with the Roman patriarchate because there are so few in the East now in communion with Rome that the popes have this much greater power over the remaining Catholic faithful, who are who are now the vast bulk of the Catholic faithful, because uh, oh well, it's the, the Orthodox now schism. But I mean the, but I mean they're the vast bulk of Christians because the West is prospering and the population is increasing. So, so, so whereas Rome is definitely the most important, but one of the big Christian traditions in the first millennium, rapidly in the second millennium it becomes this huge behemoth of of with much more. Um, you know, much larger than, than the rest of that. So, so this identification becomes really intense and, and the Gregorian reform movement is really fixed on achieving that, right? They want to conform the whole of society to the gospel and, and, and they've got very systematic ideas about how that's going to be done. They want to purify the church of all these abuses of clerical marriage and simony and, and, um, 
lay investiture and, and fighting like mad to try and achieve that. And as you talked about last time with Lateran One, um, but also they're, they're very, very determined that, that the laity and, and the ordinary social life of the people should be conformed to the standards of the gospel. And, um, and, and, and many, many different intellectual movements are, are kind of feeding into this. So, so in the late uh, 11th century, um, traditionally in Pisa, Justinian's law code, which he created back in the 6th century, is rediscovered. It had been sort of lost to the West. And it's a kind of, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a mixed blessing, the rediscovery of it. But it, it does, it does, because it's kind of a little bit more centralizing and, and um, totalitarian is too strong. But it certainly, it certainly, it certainly gives more default authority to this, to the civil power than than is perhaps altogether healthy. And that's part of the logic of, of Justinian having codified the law when he did. It would take too long to go into that. But, but uh, Bologna uh, becomes the centre of legal scholarship, uh, really spurred on by this um, rediscovery of this law code. And uh, it heavily influences canon law because the, 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 the great sort of pioneers of the Gregorian reform movement are also trying to, um, are also trying to, really codify canon law so you, you've got you've got the civilian law of, of rediscovered from Justinian and you've got canon law which is sort of mined by the from the letters and of, of previous popes and the canons of previous councils and it's being sorted out into much more of a system uh, than, than it previously was in this period and uh, and that's part of this drive to try and really really you know create truly Christian society and um and uh, at the same time, um, uh, the universities are arising. Now, one of, one of the things which has occurred in this period is that, uh, is that you've got the guilds, um, which are sort of regulatory bodies, professional associations. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not quite trade unions. They're, um, because they're, they're, yeah, they're more, I don't know, I don't know what the equivalent institutions are in, in the United States, but but we still have things a bit like them in Britain, some which really are them. I mean, like the way our legal profession works is very much still a medieval sort of idea. And universities are originally guilds. So universities, in fact, universities are guilds of scholars and, um, and they're slowly emerging at this, at this period. And Bologna is one of the oldest. So Salerno is a sort of medical center. Bologna becomes this big legal center. But Paris becomes the greatest of all of them, and, and Oxford's also very important. They're the, they're the kind of four first universities, and, and to massively oversimplify it, so traditionally a fully formed medieval university has four faculties. The Faculty of Theology, which is the highest, Faculty of Arts, which deals with philosophy and, uh, and, and human learning in general, actually, which is actually the fourth. Um, and then the second one is the Faculty of Law, which deals with the organization of man as a rational animal. And then there's the Faculty of Medicine, which deals with the organization of man as an animal. So those are the four traditional 
medieval faculties and still in in you know very old universities like oxford um because paris was trashed in the french revolution so its traditions have kind of disappeared um but but in in oxford they still have you know these the, the four ancient faculties and they have sort of ceremonial representatives and they do stuff when big things with costumes happen and stuff like that um so so i mean it's all sort of still you know it's still still continuity of that existing and also some of these older universities like oxford and cambridge they are they still function much more like guilds they're still very much controlled by the actual academics there rather than being corporations that employ academics to to hand out certificates to undergraduates <laughs> um, which is uh, unfortunately how a lot of other institutions have gone but the uh, but originally these universities and and so they become real powerhouses of 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 learning and um, and you can see this massive acceleration in the in the latin west just by looking at the buildings because if you, if you look at if you look at western architecture from like the earliest greek stuff right and you do like a sort of a sort of time thingy motion sort of sequence of of um of of buildings over the centuries right you'll see this this organic development right it, it really is you can see the style slowly developing you know, all the way, th you know, through the, through the, the early, you know, Greek temples, which are based on wooden models, which are now lost. And, and then you've got the Roman arch and the dome and all this kind of stuff. And, and there's this acceleration with the conversion to Christianity. You know, the, the first, initially the Christians adopt the basilica form, which is a Roman law court, because they don't want to build their churches like temples, because what they're doing is fundamentally different from what the what the pagans are doing who worship demons you know they these these are so so they, they they choose a different architectural style than the religious architecture of the pagans so they use the legal architecture of the pagans instead which also the advantage involves big halls in which the uh, congregation can assemble whereas the the demon worshipping pagans would have been outside the temple and it would have just been the pagan the, the the priest in front of the statue of the of the false god in question. Uh, wow, that's not ecumenical now. now. Should we just say like uh, non-godly creatures or something? What's PC for that? <laughs> I think there's an ex-Dominican pagan called Matthew something who was finally kicked out of the Dominican Norder. I've forgotten what his name is. But he, um, I think he had something called like the Centre, probably still exists, the, the Centre for Creation-Centred Spirituality or something, which sounds lovely, you know, St. Francis, but actually it's all about worshipping the creature instead of the creator. <laughs> but anyway, yes, uh, not a good idea. But uh, anyway, so um, the, um, uh, anyway, so uh, it develops through that, but by the time it gets to the Hagia Sophia, right, the Justinian builds, it's like a very dramatic different style of architecture very impressive mm -hmm. um and um uh and you can see that that's like an intense intense moment in the development of christian civilization because there's so much exciting and new going on in the physical architecture there's a civilizational self-confidence really expressed in in, in stone and uh, in some ways uh, the one way to look at the 12th century is is as as, a, as they're, they're trying to get back to where Justinian was, you know, they're reconquering the, the, the lost Roman Empire, they're holding big ecumenical councils, um, you know, they're, 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 conf they're, they're trying to fix the mores of the people through the legal system, you know, so, so in a way it's, and, and also even, even Boethius, who, 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 was, um, who, was, who was in fact killed by the Ostrogoths because he was suspected of sympathy with 
Justinian's predecessor, but he was trying to put together the kind of perfect Christian philosophy. So he was very much trying to do what the universities were going to achieve in the High Middle Ages. So in a way, you can see the High Middle Ages as after centuries of kind of of just about carrying on in the face of horrible barbarian invasions and Islamic conquests and all sorts of stuff, they're finally back on their feet and they're trying to take pick up from where they left off uh, in the sixth century. That's one way of looking at it. Um, but anyway, um, uh, in the eleventh century, this architectural development begins to, to begins to accelerate. You have very impressive Romanesque or Norman architecture, which is some um, which is you can see it's still kind of trying to ape ancient Roman architecture, but in a very clever and impressive way, it's no longer, because if you look at some of the architecture of Charlemagne's period, it's very much a kind of clumsy imitation of Byzantium. Whereas, whereas by the time you get to uh, the, the late 11th century, it's a sophisticated engagement with the, the past. It's still very much growing out of it, but, it, but then by the time you get to the 12th century, you're entering the Gothic and it's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, it's like, you know, centuries of development occurring in the space of a few decades. And these, these cathedrals, you know, you look at Notre Dame in Paris or Notre Dame in Chartres or any of these, these amazing Gothic cathedrals, these are not buildings built by people who are overawed by the pagan Roman past. You know, they, they, you know we know all that stuff and we've assimilated it and we've, 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 we've taken it all up, but we've moved on and... Boy, have we moved on. Now and, we're up to 7-Eleven churches. <laughs> Say again. Now we're up to 7-Eleven churches. <laughs> but that, that, I mean, they look like, you know, they look, if, if you'd seen a building like that mm -hmm. back in Justinian's time or in still less 200 years earlier, still more rather 200 years earlier, it would have looked like an alien spacecraft had just landed in the middle of your city. I mean, the, you know, the Gothic buildings are, are, are really, really dramatic in, uh, um, development and and swaggering self-confidence and and you can see what a what a sort of cultural cringe the so-called renaissance is later on because suddenly it's kind of like suddenly they're desperately trying to imitate the latin that was written in the first century bc and ad and 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 all the buildings now have to be pastiche roman pagan buildings and there's there's this great um catholic convert uh, sort of guru of neo-gothic architecture um uh, um, uh, Augustus Welby Pugin, uh, and he wrote these wonderful books. They're they're great fun. They're really aggressive, and he hates classical architecture. Well, he doesn't hate the original classical architecture. He thinks that's fine. He sees that in the same way that the medieval philosophers do, as like Aristotle. You know, mm -hmm. we need all that. We know all that, but we also have revelation, and we're perfectly capable of advancing it. And and so they take it up and they move on. You know, so so in the same way Pugin thinks of of um, of the class of classical architecture as good for its time, but basically pagan. And we have revelation, we've moved on. Of course, he doesn't call it Gothic architecture because that's actually an insult vented by the neo-pagans in the Renaissance. They're trying to associate it with barbarism instead of nice pagan classical antiquity. So he just calls it Christian architecture as opposed to pagan architecture. But anyway, um, so, so there's none of this, you know, cultural cringe Renaissance type stuff going on in the high middle ages. There's swaggering, self-confident Christianity. And, um, and in fact, the month before um, uh, Urban II calls the First Crusade, which I, I, I put the Council of Clermont in the wrong year last time. I put it a year later. I should have been uh, 1095. Uh, I said 1096. Which Login is, uh, will start later. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but the, um, 
but uh, yeah, so so it was in. I think if I remember right, it was October 1095, the month before the Council of Clermont, um, where he called the First Crusade. Urban II, who was a who was a monk of Cluny, uh, went back to Cluny and he consecrated the new building, the Abbey of Cluny, and it was huge, and it is the and it was bigger than the Hagia Sophia. So it was the first time since Justinian's time that there was a building in the West that was bigger than a building in Byzantium. And so it was like a, an epoch, you know, defining moment, you know, uh, the, the, you know there's, there's a strong connection between the fact that it's Cluny's, Cluny, the Abbey of Cluny, which is like the seed of this great reform movement. And it's their, their Abbey, which is bigger than the Hagia Sophia. And the next month, one of their guys, who's the Pope, sends his Western bother boys to sort out Islam for the Byzantines. Um, right, so this is really the Latins are back and they're heavily armed. Uh, and they've got big buildings. Um, and uh, Where's the movie voice guy for that one? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Back from yes. the West. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so the, the reason why, so we may look back at Lateran 2 and Lateran 3 and we think, so yeah, so the, so the Latins are back with their universities and their big buildings and they're heavily armed and, and, and they're, they're off to save the Byzantines. And, uh, and so we look at the, we look at some um, Lateran two and three and we think, oh, well, these are just you know, disciplinary things and why have an ecumenical council for this stuff? But, but, but what it really reflects is the fact that, that, that they're so, that from their perspective, they're so close. And the great reproach, implicit reproach of paganism against Christianity is the fall of the Roman Empire, right? You know, just, you know, less than 20 years after the Emperor Theodosius extinguished the Vestal flame and ended paganism, uh, the Roman, the, the Rome falls to the Goths, right? So, they, so, so the great implicit reproach is, you know, we we ruled the known world, and then you lot messed it up, you know. So, so the fact that the Latins in in 1099 turn up and retake Constantinople, Jerusalem, sorry, um, is is this kind of this this moment that you know they're back. So they, this is why. They're going to get back the Roman Empire as it was at the death of Trajan. They're going to build bigger buildings than the Romans. Their philosophy is going to surpass the Romans, and they're going to conform society to the true religion, right? So, so, so it's really, really important. So, so in a way, if you take the, the it, one way of so, so in a way, the High Middle Ages kind of begins with Leo the Ninth's election in in ten forty nine, but but the, so that's really the kind of preamble. And then with 1099, bang, Jerusalem is captured, the greatest event since the resurrection, etc. as we said at the time. And uh, so that's like the, 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 the real high point. And then it kind of stretches on to um, 1274, which is when which the Second Council of Lyon occurred, which we'll look at at some later point. And, um, and it's also when Thomas Aquinas died. And there's a very discernible decline in the in the last quarter of the of the 13th century you know the popes start to be you know leave something to be desired and um you know dodgy dodgy deals with secular rulers and and um and and by the end of the century things are going really quite badly and you know shortly after the end of the century the, the popes are basically hostages in france for 70 years so so i mean it's not it's not good um so, so you can see there's a, there's a very visible decline from 12, uh, 1274 onwards. So if you actually take 1099 as the beginning of the high point and 1274 as the end, what you get bang in the middle, in fact, is um, uh, 1187, the Battle of Hattin, 
which is what causes the loss of Jerusalem uh, to, to the Crusaders. So the first half of that kind of apogee is the sort of uh, the heroic age when, when, when the, the Latins are in possession of Jerusalem and, and, and they're really fighting to the universities are being established. Canon law is being crafted. Aristotle is being translated into Latin. Boethius was trying to do that, but he got killed by the Goths. So he never managed to do it. So that really is a very, a very, very, very um, visceral sense of, of resuming where we left off um, in the sixth century there, that, that, that they, they, they resume the, the program of translation that Boethius was working on when he died. Um, and uh, so, so it's in that context of this that you have these two councils. Uh, these, so the first of them is um, is Lateran II. Now Lateran II is called by Pope Innocent II for slightly sort of banal reasons, which is that there's a that when when he uh, when he was elected Pope on the death of Honorius II, there was a uh, there was a, a, a disputed papal election and, and an anti-Pope was elected along with Innocent II and it, it was rather complicated and and it went on for some time and then the anti-Pope died and Innocent II was finally uh, recognised as the unchallenged Pope and in order to sort of put a seal on, on, on his status as the unchallenged Pope he, um, he, he summoned this ecumenical council and these councils had very large numbers of bishops because you know because the West was very large and highly populated and there were lots and lots of bishops people were doing what the Pope said the investiture controversy had been resolved with the first Lateran Council, so the um, so you know that so the, the papal leadership of Christendom was very vivid. But one of the um, and and if you look through the canons, they're very much just reassertions of the ideals and priorities of the uh, Gregorian Reform movement. There's a couple of obscure social heresies which are condemned there, um, and uh, to things to do with rejecting clerical authority and things like that. And this is going to become a bigger and bigger problem because one of the side effects of this intensive intensification of the attempt to perfectly identify the church with organized society is that the clergy are just not that impressive. And so the, so the laity are getting more and more sort of, in, you know, higher and higher expectations and the clergy are just not delivering on those expectations and the, the universities are partly, uh, are partly an attempt to, 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 you know, provide a more educated clergy that the seminary, as an institution doesn't come into existence until the Counter-Reformation. So, so, so really, uh, you become a cleric before this period through a kind of just apprenticeship uh, to the existing clergy. Um, even going back to Charlemagne's time, there's been a big, big push to get cathedral schools set up, and this, this is which has been interrupted somewhat by the by the the, the problems of the falling apart of Charlemagne's empire, and that that's resumed. That's resumed. Um, particularly noticeably in Lateran three, so um, but these these social heresies which start to arise, some of them are like well-intentioned people who are just sort of upset that things aren't they're not meeting up with the ideal, but then get sort of confused. And one of the big errors that tends to tends to float around among unhappy laity is the idea that that a priest can't validly confect the sacraments unless he is. Um, unless he is in a state of grace. Now, obviously that would completely destroy the visibility of the church, but it's very easy to understand why 
you know, lay, lay, the laity can get very upset, you know, if they know that the priest, priest is living, at least, is basically almost illiterate and is living a scandalous life and has some shacked up with some woman or, or whatever, or several women. Um, and obviously, you know, they, they, they don't, you know, it's, it's, it's very understandable that they would want to deny that he was the real deal, but it, it, it's unfortunately fatal for the existence of the church as an error. Um, uh, so th this is one of the problems that starts to arise. Um, one of the other problems that, that is tied in very much with Lateran three is um, is the uh, is the struggle, the continued struggle with the empire, um, because uh, and really I think in some ways this the, the degree of papal leadership that the, is attempted in this period is, is absolutely key to its to the great achievements of the 12th and 13th century, but it's probably a mistake. It's kind of, um, it's kind of one of these sort of, it's like one of these tragic flaws, you know, that brings about the downfall of the great, of the great, in this case, era rather than, rather than man, because, and yet it's somehow bound up with his greatness because, because um, the popes just can't be the emperors of Christendom, right? It would undermine the very nature of the, of the church if uh, if the popes were actually wielding temporal power and actually you know ruling directly uh, the whole of Christendom, um, as if they were you know they were the emperors and and the kings were the proconsuls or whatever. Is that your um, two Is that your two swords chapter? Well, yes, exactly. That that's the thing. So this 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 clarification of the relationship between the temporal and the spiritual uh it really arises at this time and one of the great figures of this period is saint bernard mm -hmm. he isn't actually the founder of the cistercians the cistercians are founded um uh, just a year before the first crusade takes jerusalem mm -hmm. and they're founded by these three saints um robert harding um st sorry stephen harding uh, robert of malem and alberic the three great cistercian founders um and what they are is a more ascetic um uh, more um, uh, plain and simple application. So St. Bernard is the second generation of the Cistercians, but he becomes such a rock star that everybody kind of identifies it with him, uh, even though he's not actually the founder of the Cistercians, but, but he recruits vast numbers of people, you know, like his entire extended family and vast numbers of monasteries. And um, but he, um, he's also very important in developing this precision on the doctrine of the two swords and precisely the relationship between the spiritual and temporal power. Um, but it's clear that whatever the technicalities of it are, which are all, you know, definitely above criticism, because uh, I mean, that, that doctrine is, of St. Bernard's is, is solemnly defined in 1302 by St. Boniface, or not St. Uh, <clears throat> um, uh, Pope Boniface VIII. I mean, hopefully he's a saint. We just had a canonization, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> and Dante doesn't put him in hell, does he? I can't really <laughs> um, but anyway, yes. Um, uh, but um, yes, so, so uh, perhaps he does put, I can't remember, Paul Boniface VIII. Anyway, um, but uh, he had a difficult time with it. Um, but um, yeah, he, um, uh, yes, defined, but this, but, but it's clear the popes are really leading Christendom. And we talked about last time how the, um, the First Crusade, there were no kings or emperors on it. So it's very much the papal army which takes Jerusalem. And uh, now the, the kings and emperors try and remedy this in the 12th century. They're trying to sort of wrench back the, uh, uh, the, um, the leadership of Christendom. Uh, the, the Second Crusade 
which happens after Edessa falls back to the Muslims. So there are, there are four crusader states, as they're called, established at the end of the First Crusade, basically because of the fact that the Byzantine emperor abandoned them at Antioch. So instead of just becoming provinces of the Byzantine Empire ruled by the Latins, they become independent states. And, um, and, and the first of them to be established is the county of Edessa. Um, and then the other, the other three are the Principality of Antioch, the County of Tripoli, and the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And, um, but the first one that was established is the County of Edessa, and that gets lost again to the Muslims in 1144. And that causes kind of panic, uh, because it, and rightly so, because it, it really is a sign that things are not, are not, not safe in, in the reconquered Holy Land. And uh, so the Second Crusade gets sent out after that, and there's lots of kings on the Second Crusade. Um, but it doesn't achieve very much. St. Bernard is a big uh, campaigner and recruiter for the Second Crusade, and he's very miserable when, when it turns out that very little is achieved by it. Um, uh, but some, but the, so the, in fact, the, the, the King of Germany, the Holy Roman Emperor-elect, uh, goes on the Second Crusade. And, um, but uh, uh, between the Second Lateran Council and the Third Lateran Council, so the Third Lateran Council is in uh, 1179, uh, between the two is the the great the great big bump reign of the um, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick the First Frederick Barbarossa, um, and uh, he's a very sort of towering figure. I think physically he was a towering figure, and he's a sort of great warrior and general. And um, and he reigns as emperor from 1155 to 1190, so it's a very long reign. And um, and he's he's very keen to to restore imperial leadership of Christendom and, um, and, and, and imperial leadership in the Crusades eventually. And, he, um, and, and, and one of the things he wants to do is to, is to, is to gain real imperial control over Northern Italy uh, because, the, um, uh, because Northern Italy, as I think we talked about before, is very, only really nominally under the, under the authority of the emperor. They're basically all the local little towns become autonomous little republics with um with they get you know concessions and charters and whatever from the emperor but really they're they're basically sovereign mm -hmm. more or less not legally but de facto um and uh, and and barbarossa wants to this is nickname means red beard and he wants to um he wants to make uh he wants to make northern italy actually be his and just a province of his empire and in order to really assert his his authentic majesty as Roman emperor. And of course he's being spurred onto this, on, onto this by, um, uh, by the, the study of, of Roman law, of Justinian's Roman law, because the, the, the emperors in, in the West are thinking, well, this is, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is who we are. So they're getting much stronger sense of, um, of, of the autonomy and the, the absolute power of the emperors. And this leads to a very, very long war with lots of anti-popes, um, the popes are determined to prevent the emperors dominating northern Italy in this way uh, because they, they, they think they're just going to end up as the chaplains um, to uh, the chaplains to um, the, the German emperors if they allow this to happen and um, so, so, so there's, there's real bitterness and, and real vicious struggle particularly with Pope Alexander III who is also Pope for an extremely long time, 1159 to 1181. So, so their sort of their reigns overlap, and um, and 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 he he's organizes the Italian city states into this Lombard League in order to uh, in order to resist 
Frederick the Frederick the First's attempts to conquer things, and uh, in the end, the popes win. Now, this is a, a, it's resolved in in eleven seventy seven. It's called the Peace of Venice, which 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 a, 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 an amicable reconciliation is achieved between the pope and the emperor. Um, and uh, although it's interesting that in the middle of this struggle. Um, uh, Manuel the second, sorry, Manuel the first, rather, Komnenos, who's the emperor in Constantinople, uh, he um, he he actually campaigns a little bit in Italy. He doesn't get very far, but he's the last Byzantine emperor to to campaign in Italy, and uh, and he, given that the pope's relations with with Frederick Barbarossa are so bad, he actually suggests, you know, well, you know, we could uh, see about undoing that business in 800 or, or rather correcting it. You know, I could come up to Rome and you could crown me emperor instead of this Barbarossa chap. So, and that would of course, you know, have, 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 have perhaps untied the, the difficulty that, that was created there and, and, and been, been a, a real way of reconciling East and West. I mean, it's fanciful. The power of the Byzantine emperor is too weak. Uh, it would have just provoked uh, the Western emperors and uh, and achieved little, so which is why why the, the offer doesn't really get taken up. Mm -hmm. um, and but I mean there really is progress there, and if and, and you um, and in uh, Manuel the first's time, because the Crusader states are, are, are more threatened, and uh, because the Second Crusade doesn't really successfully undo the destabilization of them that have been caused by the loss of Edessa. Um, the Crusader states start to get all chummy with the Byzantine Emperor again. So the situation that Urban II had wanted to happen of the Crusades becoming a, a, a vehicle for the reconciliation of the Byzantine Emperor and the, um, and the, uh, and the West um, uh, looks as if it might happen. And, um, and, and there's a real cultural exchange going on there that, that which has not happened previously because the Byzantines have been so contemptuous of the Latins but 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 Manuel is quite is quite keen on Latin culture and he even holds tournaments and jousting and stuff in Constantinople and uh, I always think it's interesting there's there's a there's a romance by one of the great uh, one of the other the other huge cultural changes in this period is is the invention of romantic love which is basically a Christian idea um, uh, but it partly it comes a lot of modern scholars think that it comes out of um, uh, the the university is trying to pin down how many sacraments there are. So this is one of the really interesting examples of doctrinal development because all the all those churches with valid apostolic succession of their bishops all agree that there's seven sacraments, right? But none of them said there were until the 12th century. The Latins suddenly were like kind of they got their universities together and they're they they've got their Aristotelian logic translated and they're 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 trying to sort stuff out. You know all the messy stuff they're trying to sort of in the way that Boethius was already trying to do back in the sixth century they resume this 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 task and they're like you know there's those kind of stuff that we do and even if the priest isn't worthy it still happens and what do you call that what how many of those are there and, uh, and they're like yeah, the, yeah those are the sacraments and there's i think there's uh yeah seven of them and uh, so they and they start to work divide up you know and what do you have to do to be sure that that really happens? Well, the stuff you have to do and the stuff you have to say and the stuff you have to intend and they kind of work. Oh, da, 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 da. And so they're, they're, they're finally getting down to all the technicalities of this. And, um, and one, of the, one of the big shockers that this produces is, is a problem with marriage. 
because they're like, well, so what is marriage? And they're like, what's the form and what's the matter? And what's the intention? And they, they, they realize that, that, that basically it's the agreement to a perpetual monogamous union for the sake of procreation between the two parties is what marriage is. And that's the essence of it. And, um, and so, so the, the, the consent is what creates the marriage. And so they'd always kind of assumed, no one had ever said it, but they always assumed that it was basically to do with offering his, offering a dad a few cows and, and getting a, a corner of that field was uh, in exchange was, was what marriage was all about. But when they really thought about it, they realized that this was actually, it was the exchange of consent. And so actually wanting to marry the guy or wanting to marry the girl um, is, is, was really turned out to be quite important. And this seems to have, have transformed Western culture. This whole concept of romantic love um, starts to bubble up. And one of, one of, the, one of the big um, effects of that are these romances about you know sort of uh heroes you compare for example the song of roland which was probably written around the time or perhaps a bit before or just a, a simultaneous with or something like that the first crusade the song of roland which is about one of charlemagne's campaigns heavily embellished is very kind of you know action movie there's not a lot of girls in it really it has to be said it's mostly about smiting muslims and you know blokey camaraderie on the battlefield and uh, there is one female in it who dies of grief when she finds out that roland's died but she has a walk-on part roland's dead ah, boomf, that's it uh, yeah there's really not a lot else going on but then just a few decades later you compare that to the romances of Chrétien de troy who's this who's writes these arthurian stories um, and, and it's all, you know, there's lots of adventures and stuff, but it's, there's lots of mushy-gushy sort of um, romantic stuff going on there as well. And, and so there's been a big transformation in Western culture, just like with the architecture in this very short period. And, but he wrote one of these romances called Cliege, and the hero of that is, is, a, is the son of the emperor in Constantinople. And so he's so so the, the, there being you can see that along with Manuel's jousts and the deals which he strikes with the Crusader states to be recognised as their feudal superior, and he marries a Latin princess. And so the, really, what what Urban II wanted to happen is kind of happening at, at this point. But then it all it all uh, and and of course in a way Manuel sorry I keep saying Manuel II he's much later Manuel the first um, uh, the um, uh, uh, that his his suggestion that he might be crowned emperor by the pope is also a sign you know of the potential reintegration of east and west but um uh it doesn't happen uh, for a couple of reasons one is that temporarily um the the conflict in the west is resolved for three reasons one is the byzantine emperor isn't that powerful he so he's not really going to become a major power on the italian mainland enough for it to be worth the pope's while to alienate uh, other people in the west by 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 going back to being chummy with the Byzantines. The second reason is that um, the conflict with the, uh, with the Western emperors is finally resolved by the Peace of Venice in uh, 1177. Um, and, um, but the, probably the single most catastrophic reason prior at least to the debacle of the Fourth Crusade, which we'll get to in a sec, um, is uh, is what's called the massacre of the Latins in 1182. So unfortunately, Manuel II dies in 1180, and his son is deposed by his evil uncle, Andronicus I. Now, Andronicus I is an absolute scumbag. I mean, he is one of the nastiest figures in in Western history. With really, a name really. like that, you have to be. Uh, well, yeah, I think I wonder. I assume Shakespeare 
got the idea of Titus Andronicus from. I mean, it's very garbled where that play, what period in history that play is supposed to be set in. Uh-huh. But uh, but the um, but uh, I, I think somewhere in the background, at least subconsciously, Andronicus the first must be the inspiration for, for for the name of Titus Andronicus. Anyway, but he's really really foul, horrible person, and and you know he murders his nephew, and he uh, he um, he steals his. A very, very, very young fiance, and and does hor- and basically marries her, and, and yes, profoundly inappropriate. Um, and um, uh, and but one of the things he does in and he overthrows uh, the rightful emperor's mother, who is this Latin princess, and um, and uh, so. But one of the things he does in order to kind of get to power is that he he rides a wave of reaction in Byzantium against this reconciliation with the West and appreciation of Western culture is still very difficult emotionally for the Byzantines because their, their instinct is very much still to look down on the Westerners as, as you know, semi-literate, revolting barbarians. And um, so, um, so basically uh, in, in 1182, he leads this massive, you know, they just be grab all the Latins in the Byzantine Empire out of their beds in the middle of the night and murder them all. And so, so that that's this absolutely poisons the relations and ruins the chances of um, ruins the chances of uh, of a proper reconciliation and, and and everything that Urban II had been working for. And only five years after that, in 1187, you have the Battle of Hattin, in which uh, the true relic of the True Cross is captured by the Muslims. I mean, obviously we have chunks of it but the largest single part of the relic of the true cross was captured by the muslims at the battle of hattin and is never recaptured nobody knows what happened to it and um and uh, just shortly afterwards jerusalem falls back to islam so that's called and the pope urban iii dies of shock when he finds out about this um so so i mean it's it's a it's a real you know it's it's a real wound uh in 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 the the tale that the, the hitherto are tale of triumph of, of the high middle ages um now uh, but anyway a lateran three occurs just before the year before the massacre of the latins in 1179 uh it's rather like lateran one was called to um confirm the uh, restoration of peace after the investiture controversy so lateran three is called to confirm the restoration of peace after the uh the peace of venice um, and it's presided over by this great Pope Alexander III. And um, again, it's, it's largely disciplinary canons, um, uh, but they're very interesting. Um, for example, uh, <laughs> great contemporary re- relevance is Canon 11, uh, which um, uh, decrees the deposition and excommunication of priests who have, invo- in, who have engaged in sodomy. Um, uh, um, it's the first piece of legislation on that subject, although uh, Peter Damien was uh, was very vociferous about this question back in the previous century. Um, and, uh, and of course, that's always been uh, one of the problems with uh, the, the enforcement of clerical continence is that uh, once you're enforcing clerical continence, you have to be much more uh, vigilant that people who weren't that interested in girls anyway don't decide that the clergy now becomes a, a, a helpful career move. Um, uh, so as as has been manifested more recently, um, uh, Canon Twenty Five um, has very strict penalties for anyone who engages in usury. There are actually lots of ecumenical councils which legislate against usury. Um, 
you know, a lot of the kind of sort of um, a lot of those forces in the church nowadays who are more conservative, but whose principal interest is in turning the church into sort of chaplaincy to Western capitalism, um, uh, as opposed to, you know, the spiritual power that pr transforms the, 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 the world into um, into a fit dwelling place for the Christian. I wasn't um, going to uh, say it. You said it. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I heard the you word. And I heard the you word. I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so the, the, these kind of conservative figures gen, very 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 much don't like the church's teaching on usury and try to imply that it's really not that important. But the Ecumenical Council seems to think that it is quite important, and eventually, um, thankfully, the Council of Vienne, which we'll get to in a, in a while, um, uh, is actually defines that uh, to deny that uh, usury is is a mortal sin, is a heresy. Um, uh, but the, this is a disciplinary canon, but it's very clear that it, the, there is a disciplinary canon about usury at the Council of Nicaea, in fact, but it's, it's principally trying to stop the clergy engaging in usury because they don't have the power to be, um, to be in Nicaea, you know, the Roman Empire has only just stopped persecuting Christianity, so they don't, they don't have the power to suddenly say, oh, you all stop lending money interest, right? They can't, they can't do that because they're not, um, they're not, they're not in the saddle. Uh, in in those terms, whereas they very much are at this point. So this canon applies to everybody um, that, that is issued by Lateran three. Um, uh, canon nineteen bans the taxation of the of the clergy without the consent of the spiritual power, um, and that's um, pe people often don't understand that. It just sounds like kind of horrendous clericalism, but uh, but I mean, of course, in fact, you know, you know most countries uh, certainly in britain and the united states uh, churches are more or less tax exempt anyway but but the um uh, but the the logic behind that is that there are two as it were using later terminology sovereign powers that govern christian society mm -hmm. and and uh, and so in a certain sense the clergy are a bit like you know being uh, being ordained to the major major orders or even minor orders at this point is a bit like getting diplomatic plates on your car you know you're you're not really subject to the temporal power now you're subject to the spiritual power um and so you get a single benefit of clergy that if, if you're a cleric you get tried by the clerical courts and that is handy because the clerical courts don't use capital punishment although for the very worst offenses they just degrade you from the clerical state and then hand you over to the the temporal courts to execute you um uh, but it's important because it's important i mean uh, obviously it's open to abuse all, all forms of power are open to abuse but but um uh, you know, less open to abuse when there are very, very powerful Christian rulers, I would suggest. Um, and um, and it is very important that the spiritual power be seen as fully sovereign and, and, and not just a, a, a non-governmental organisation within the framework of, of, of the state, which is also a later um, uh, construction. And Canon 18 of, of, of Lateran 3 is very much about uh, cathedral schools, um, uh, which we were talking about as being the sort of what, what triggered in many cases the creation of the universities. Mm -hmm. But so, so, for example, the Cathedral School of Paris was the core of the University of Paris, which was the greatest medieval university. And uh, but lots of other scholars turned up. Other religious houses would have schools and other scholars who were just famous would turn up and people would... would um, uh, you know, come and sit at their feet and pay them to attend their classes. And so you ended up with these little uh, federations of, 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 um, of colleges or halls. And, and again, the structure of Oxford and Cambridge is still very much like that because, um, because of the fact that they, 
albeit with a great deal of vandalism done in the Reformation, nevertheless, the, the same institution have survived across that period and therefore they still have very much the medieval structure. Um, so that is Lateran 3. Now, um, uh, if, we, if we have time, then we should probably look at, uh, at Lateran 4. Um, uh, I don't know how long we've gone on. Do you want to look at Lateran 4 now or should we look at it next We're in an hour, what do you think? Well, I think we could probably probably do Lateran 4 in 10 minutes or 20 minutes, if that's okay. Go for it. Okay, so, so Lateran 4 is the kind of, in some ways people see it as the crowning moment of the Middle Ages, right? Because um, uh, Frederick Barbarossa, the emperor who had had the big feud with Alexander III, he goes off on the Third Crusade uh, after the Battle of Hattin to try and restore Jerusalem. And uh, he's, he is a huge army and he's very powerful and probably would have got Jerusalem back actually in the Third Crusade if he'd made it to the Holy Land. But he's getting on a bit by this point, but he's still a, a scary old warrior. And, uh, but he stops off in Anatolia or something, I think it is, uh, to take a drink of water out of a stream and he falls in probably in full armour and that's it, he drowns, that's the end of him. So um, uh, I remember when I was an undergraduate, my, my tutor set, set us... Um, uh, an essay title, uh, What Were the Main Problems Faced by Frederick Barbarossa and How Well Did He Deal With Them? And one of my colleagues, uh, uh, who was, a, who was a, um, a, 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 yes, a Scotsman who knew how to enjoy himself, uh, he, um, he had not got round to writing this essay by the time it was due in. And uh, so he just wrote on the top of a piece of paper, he couldn't swim. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably unfair on poor old Frederick. It's probably just that he was wearing heavy armor or something. Three hundred pounds of armor. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the fact that he died in such weird circumstances is partly um, partly led to this legend in Germany that he's sleeping under some mountain somewhere and he's going to come back and do whatever he's going to do, um, and uh, which is probably why Hitler called the invasion of Russia Operation Barbarossa. But anyway, um, but because um, uh, they were obsessed with these kind of weird legends, the Nazis. Um, but anyway, so he he never he never had that big a, a role, or he didn't because he never got there in the Third Crusade. Um, in the end, it would be the King of England, Richard the Lionheart, who was um, who was the biggest figure in the Third Crusade and, and achieved a great deal. Uh, but realised in the end that he couldn't take retake Jerusalem because he didn't have enough troops to garrison all the, the the port cities that he'd recaptured in order to uh, keep the king of Jerusalem on its feet. Uh, if he would then take Jerusalem, he'd have to move all those troops to Jerusalem, then the Muslims would take back the port cities and Jerusalem would immediately be recaptured. So he, he kind of went home in order to try and get a new army and come back and get Jerusalem. And then in the meantime, he got shot by some completely random bloke with a crossbow. And uh, so it never happened. But um, yeah, so... Um, uh, yes, so um, uh, so Frederick Barbarossa's reign is uh, comes to this um, su this surprising end, but he is succeeded by his son Henry the Sixth, who is you know a fully competent adult, um, and uh, so it looks like the empire is still going to be immensely powerful, and uh, and then um, uh, this emperor Henry the Sixth manages to marry the heiress to the kingdom of Sicily. And this is a complete nightmare from the Pope's point of view, because they always, they're desperate that the emperors should not control Northern Italy. And they were, the thing they were most terrified of is that the emperors should control Northern Italy and Sicily, because the King of Sicily also includes Southern, the bottom of the boots of Italy. Mm -hmm. So that would mean they were completely surrounded in the middle between Imperial territories. So, um, so this is, it looks like this is going to be the moment at which the empire really takes back control of Christendom over the papacy. 
and it never happens because Frederick the sorry uh, Henry the Sixth dies unexpectedly young. So his son, um, who's only a baby, uh, who becomes the Emperor Frederick the Second much later, and it is a big problem. He becomes the the heir to these two lines, the the Sicilian line and the the Hohenstaufen. Uh, line of, of of emperors in Germany, but that 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 problem is temporarily bracketed because he's too too small a kid, um, and uh, and in fact um, there ends up being a long dispute between two rival dynasties, the Welfs uh, and the um, and the and the uh, Hohenstaufen uh, over whether because obviously rival dynasties are kind of interested in trying to use this opportunity to get hold of the imperial title in Germany and the popes aren't that worried about them doing that because they quite like the uh, so they, they, they but unfortunately the pope is left as kind of guardian of the of, of the young king of Sicily so he's kind of got to be an honest broker and not just um not just uh, sort of you know chuck him in the canal um and uh, um but 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 the popes would really quite like to see two different dynasties and uh, um so this leads to a certain degree of instability particularly in the empire um but in the empire meaning the german kingdom um and um uh but uh, the result of that is it leaves this gap uh, rather like what happened between the death of, of the emperor henry the third and the minority of of the emperor henry the fourth back in the 11th century it leaves this gap during which the popes can take centre stage and the popes are rarely averse to taking centre stage when the opportunity presents itself so um and uh, between the death of pope alexander the third and uh, 1198 um the the pope has been the pope the various there have been various popes they've all been pupils pals companions uh, comrades of Alexander III, so very much in the stable of this kind of, you know, heroic Pope defending papal rights and papal leadership of Christendom against Frederick Barbarossa. Mm -hmm. And this, this, uh, this climaxes with the election of, um, of Pope Innocent III in 1198. And uh, Innocent III's pontificate is basically seen as the high point of the papacy in the Middle Ages. And it climaxes just before his death with uh, the Fourth Lateran Council. And Innocent III really does preside over Christendom. And, you know, he excommunicates uh, kings and emperors and they do as they're told and they conform. And um, he, 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 he excommunicates, he puts the whole of England under an interdict for, for several years because King John, who's terrible successor of Richard the Lionheart, um, uh, he, he doesn't want to accept Pope Innocent. There's a dispute over the election to the Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, Pope Innocent III in the end, rather than picking one side or the other, drops in a friend of his, um, Stephen Langton, to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Stephen Langton is a pretty amazing figure. He um, he uh, he wrote Magna Carta, uh, which is the you know the origin of the Anglo-Saxon tradition of limited government uh, and constitutional monarchy. Um, and he uh, he 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 introduced the elevation of the host and the chalice at mass because when he was an academic at the University of Paris. There was a group of uh, dodgy academics who um, denied that the that the that the transubstantiation occurs at the moment of the words of institution. Uh, so, in order to annoy them, he 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 would he introduced this idea of elevating the host and the child immediately after the words of institution were said, so that people could adore our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament immediately that he he was present there, just to really annoy the people who had this unorthodox view about when transubstantiation occurs. Um, he also put the chapters into the Bible 
and he wrote uh, the uh, golden sequence, the Veni Sancti Spiritus. Uh -huh. So, you know, he's, 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 he's a bit of a rock star, Stephen Langton. Um, uh, there, was, there was a later English bishop. He, he's never had a, as far as I know, there's never been a cause for his beatification or canonization. But there was a later English bishop who had a, who had a vision. I think it was three years after Langton's death, which also happened to be 30 years after Richard the Lionheart's death. And there was an English bishop who had a vision of the two of them being released from purgatory. So, so, um, so uh, Richard the Lionheart had spent 33 years in purgatory um, and, and Langton three years in purgatory. So, so if that vision's reliable, they're both in heaven up there praying for us. It's just, you know, they, they didn't quite make the grade in terms of, of, of canonizable saints. But um, uh, so, um, uh, yeah, there was, he had problems with the King of France as well, dodgy marital goings on, but Innocent III's bang, smashing him down, telling him what to do. Um, uh, but the thing the popes were really obsessed with above all is, um, and, and, and also Innocent III is one of the early, is one of the popes who gives them the grandest declarations concerning the nature of the papal office. So, so there's a three famous quotes from him on this. His coronation sermon. He quotes Jeremiah, I've been set this day over the kingdoms and over the nations to uproot and to tear down, to lay waste and to destroy, to build and to plant, right? So he's like, um, uh, blue lightning coming out of his fingertips. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and he, um, there's other, there's, I've forgotten which one, there's one of, the, one of these statements is in a letter to the Patriarch of Constantinople. He says some, um, uh, and he, uh, and I've, I've forgotten what the third, where the third one is, but he famously says, he says that the Pope is below God, but above man, and given not only the universal church, but the whole world to govern. And, uh, and then the other one is, uh, just as the moon derives its light from the sun, so too the royal power derives the splendor of its dignity from the pontifical authority. Right? So this is kind of uh, um, full on, you know, this is Pope on steroids, huge crown, massive cope, um, enormous pallium. Um, and uh, so he, um, now one of the problems is, uh, one of the other big problems, well, there's two problems. So obviously they lost Jerusalem. He's very, very keen to get Jerusalem back. That's a key part of how the popes managed to get themselves into this position was through the capture of Jerusalem in the First Crusade. Um, uh, and so uh, the Fourth Crusade is launched early on in, uh, well, five years into Innocent III's pontificate. And this is a complete disaster because uh, they, um, uh, the, the leaders of the Fourth Crusade uh, do a deal with the Venetians to build an absolutely massive fleet. Now the Venetians are very efficient and clever and always uh, interested in making a lot of money out of things and are not to be trusted. Um, and, uh, and, and the Venetians agree to build them a massive fleet so they can just sail uh, to the Holy Land and, and capture Jerusalem. And it's been realized by Richard the Lionheart and other crusaders prior to the Fourth Crusade that the, um, that the, uh, the real, the key thing we, uh, it is, is because they don't have the backup from Byzantium, you know, that was looking, it was going that way with Manuel I, it's all messed up with Andronicus I, um, it's probably never going to be properly fixed. Uh, after Andronicus I eventually gets deposed and is hacked to death uh, over two days in the middle of the Hippodrome, so he, 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 he has a thoroughly deserved fate. I think he's, they tie him between two pillars and then slowly hack him to bits, so it's pretty horrendous, but he was a very... Go, go all out. Um, uh, and um, so, um, so they, having kind of given up on the Byzantines to some extent, 
the uh, they decide that what they need to do is conquer Egypt because Egypt is like a stable territory that could be controlled from the west has its own resources. I mean, to this day, half the population of North Africa lives on the banks of the Nile. So, so Egypt's very important. They think, well, if we could take Egypt, then we can, we can maintain the Holy Land, which is much less defensible. The Holy Land is a very difficult area to defend, just ask the Israelis. Um, and um, uh, you've got to be on top of your game. Um, and uh, so, the, um, so they think, well, if we get Egypt, we can then take the Holy Land and then we'll be able to resupply Egypt without having to worry about... Um, worry about the Byzantines and whether we can trust them and then we can leave it to the Spanish to get the way to the bottom of the Iberian Peninsula and get Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria and then everything will be happy again and we'll be back to the Roman Empire at the death of Trajan which is always the ultimate objective and um, uh, so they, they decide well, well we'll get a massive fleet we'll go and capture Egypt and then we'll sail off to the Jerusalem recapture Jerusalem and it'll be amazing and the Venetians are like great yeah we'll build you a huge fleet you know sign here um, and uh, so, so they agree and they build this massive fleet I think Venice kind of stops doing anything else for a year or something crazy and just builds massive numbers of boats ships excuse me um, and uh, and the um, and uh, then, uh, unfortunately, not everybody got the memo. So uh, not all of the Crusaders, by a long stretch, actually turn up in Venice for this fleet. And so they, they don't have the money to pay for this massive fleet. And so the Venetians kind of lock them up on an island and say, you're bloody staying here until you pay for these ships because we've spent ages building them. And, um, and so they don't really know what to do. And eventually the Venetians offer them this dodgy deal, which is that that they'd, they'd had a, a dispute with the king of Hungary over this town on the coast of the Adriatic um, and they'd lost it to the Hungarians and they wanted it back and they said well so if you could just like you know do a little detour from your trip down to Egypt and get this town back for us I know it's not really kind of crusading stuff it's just basically taking a town for us but you know it would help we'll give you 10% off yeah exactly and uh, and the crusaders are like oh okay we'll do that apart from Simon de Montfort, who's this very uh, active um, uh, and militarily uh, canny um, uh, French baron. And he's like, uh, yeah, I'm not doing that. That's not crusading, get lost. And, and he, he goes off. And, um, but the, the, the others agree to this and I'm not sure they fully tell the, the foot soldiers as it were what's going on. But anyway, they go off to Hungary to do this. Innocent III is furious because crusades are consecrated holy wars that are only supposed to be used for spiritual purposes and you know using them for helping out the venetian trading position is absolutely not okay and so he excommunicates them all and uh, which the the leaders of crusade kind of conceal from the ordinary crusaders and then in the meantime the succession crisis which is caused by the deposition of andronicus the first um has uh, has fragmented into another succession crisis in Byzantium and there's this ex-Byzantine emperor and his son wandering around uh, trying to find backers to put them back on the throne of Constantinople so the son of this deposed Byzantine emperor turns up and, and meets the crusaders and says look you know you've already understood the benefits of you know a little bit of flexibility as to what you do on a crusade um and we've always you always wanted the, the the emperor in constantinople to help you out and that's always the original plan and uh, so if you were to put me back on the throne of constantinople uh, then i would come out the vast wealth of constantinople would be at your disposal huge armies of byzantines we'd all we'd all be together latins and greeks off to jerusalem waha and uh, just just get me back on the throne and so they're all, they still owe the venetians a fortune so the venetians so and the venetians are like oh yes 
Yes, that would be very interesting to gain a kind of controlling interest in in in, in Constantinople. And um, so the um, so the leaders of the Crusade agree to this uh, blasphemous and sacrilegious misuse of the Crusade, and uh, and off they go to Constantinople. They, with the help of, of sort of inside men, because no one ever manages to get into Constantinople unless they have guys on the inside until finally the Turks do in the 15th century. Um, and uh, so they, they managed to get the Crusaders in. They managed to put this guy back on the throne of Constantinople. Uh, it's a disaster. The, the Greeks can't stand him. They think he's a nasty little Latin toady. What's he doing coming along with these Crusaders? Um, uh, they, they didn't like him anyway. They don't, he, the, the treasury turns out to be empty. Um, and uh, he's so loathed by the uh, the population of Constantinople that he he can't possibly go on crusade with the Crusaders because um, because if he as soon as he left Constantinople he'd be deposed. So uh, so he totally reneges on the deal, and so the Crusaders are just stuck there outside the walls of Constantinople with no money to pay the Venetians and no Byzantine army or Byzantine subsidies to help them go and capture Jerusalem, and uh, so they just sort of lose it. And using the inf inside knowledge they got through putting him back on the throne, they managed to storm Constantinople together with the Doge of Venice. That's the ruler of Venice, who's actually blind. He jumps off the ship into the water and charges the Byzantines, even though he can't see. Um, and uh, and uh, it's a very... We're supposed to admire this, according to the accounts written by the Crusaders, but the fact that you're killing Christians... Uh, <laughs> On the, yeah, it doesn't seem to. And uh, so the whole thing's a disaster. They sack Constantinople. It's one of the greatest acts of vandalism in, in Western history. Uh, and, it, and any remaining good feeling uh, or slight guilt that the Byzantines might have had about the massacre of the Latins under Andronicus I is right. washed away by the permanent grudge of the appalling sack of Constantinople in, uh, in 1204. And then they set up this sort of colonial pseudo-Byzantine Empire, the Latin Empire of Constantinople, run by the Venetians and these various Western Crusaders. And it's a complete disaster. The first Latin Emperor is captured by a bunch of barbarians and is never heard of again. And, and, and the, it only lasts about slightly less than 60 years before the Byzantines scatter and form these little successor states which eventually consolidate and recapture Constantinople in the 1260s. Um, but, but in the course of doing this, they, they've massively further embittered the feelings, particularly of ordinary Byzantines uh, towards the Latins. So, so it's, it's a catastrophe. Now, no, Innocent III, John Paul II apologised for this, which, you know, I mean, you know, it's great. It's nice that he apologised. But I mean, I'm not sure that he could really be said to be responsible for it, given that Innocent III excommunicated the Crusaders who did it. So, I mean, but anyway, um, and um, was very annoyed about it. So the other big problem that they're facing that is, forms the background to Lateran IV is that um, this uh, resentment of the laity against the semi-literate, uh, loose-living clergy um, has been hijacked by this um, nasty heretical movement, um, which actually originated inside the Byzantine Empire. It was originally a, a heresy of, called of the Paulicians. But it, by the time it crops up uh, in the West, it's known as the Cathar heresy or the Albigensian heresy named after Albi, the city in southern France, which is the centre of it. Um, and it's, it's really serious. I mean, it's, it's another religion. It, it's basically the Manichaean uh, religion that Augustine belonged to before he converted to Christianity. And uh, which basically believes there are two gods, a fluffy, glowy, uh, spiritual, white, cotton woolly god. And, uh, and then an icky, sticky, uh, um, treacly 
a bad material god and although in fact really that both of their ideas are materialistic but but uh, so i think the spirit is this glowy happy god and 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 and, and, and matter is the nasty treacly god and uh, and and the nasty treacly god attacked the, the 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 spiritual god and the two got stuck together i mean it really is this stupid but anyway um and um uh and 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 the world is the area that, that of, of of them being stuck together and the souls of the elect are little fragments of the of the shiny happy spiritual god stuck inside the treacly material god and um and that's where all evil comes from all evil comes from matter spirit is good matter is bad and and good people are fragments of spirit encased in matter and in and and, and they have a, a twofold hierarchy the perfect and the hearers and the perfect uh they they are supposed to have nothing to do with matter and eventually starve themselves to death and then they will be freed and go off and be, and be merged back into the spiritual god and then there are the hearers who are the kind of laity and they get to they they basically can do whatever the hell they like because everything that they do is wrong and bad because it involves the body therefore they can you know sex drugs and rock and roll that's fine because it's all morally indifferent because it's all evil anyway it's a bit like luther's doctrine of so total depravity um and um and the uh and then so long as they you know you know remember to try and starve themselves to death 20 seconds before they actually do die then they'll, they'll escape into the happy fluffy god and uh, but the result is that they're these emaciated figures in long flowing robes who look really kind of impressive and guru -y, you know like sort of you know buddhist figures that hollywood types like to hang around with you know it's exactly the same psychological dynamic the hollywood types don't really want to destroy their own personality by dissolving it in nirvana or, or you know only eat fruit or whatever it is the guru that they like to hang around with that they, they what they want to do is 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 you know um is you know consume lots of cocaine and sleep with lots of people but but uh, but they feel good hanging around with the buddhist guru guy and it's the same psychological dynamic um with the uh with the cathars and it but it, it sweeps like wildfire particularly through southern france because um because of the fact that um, uh, they look like the real deal, like these Buddhist gurus do in the face of the kind of uh, theologically illiterate, morally compromised clergy, ring any bells. So, so, the, so, the, um, so, so, so it's a real danger to the church and uh, the temporal rulers are either in Southern France particularly, and uh, tragically the Counts of Toulouse, who are the successors of Raymond of Toulouse, who's one of the great heroes of the first crusade, um, they uh, they are either conniving at it or they are actually um, for political reasons or they actually buy into it or something it's not clear what um, but eventually the papal legate who is sent to try and deal with this by innocent the third gets murdered um, and um, and this triggers a crusade against the heretics in southern France which becomes pretty brutal called the Albigensian Crusade which ends up being led by Simon de Montfort the great crusader who refused to participate in the fourth crusade because uh, it being misdirected to to uh, profane purposes so he had, he's he's some um, yeah Simon de Montfort he's you know he's a kind of Imagine sort of Cortez and Pizarro with a lot more piety, but just as scary. Um, and uh, and and he uh, he um, uh, yeah. So he's he's pretty scary, and he and he wages this war um, in in the, in the Languedoc in the south of France to uh, extirpate uh, heresy. Um, so all of these different strands kind of 
climax in the summoning of the uh, Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 and uh, presided over by Innocent III, vast numbers of clerics and, and bishops there. St. Francis and St. Dominic um, appear to have been present at the council. Uh, they are, uh, Innocent III sees where things are going, the problem of these, of these uh, disorganized and often heretical lay movements arising out of the frustration of the people. And he's very keen to encourage orthodox versions of these movements. And so, so he encourages St. Dominic uh, and the foundation of the Dominicans uh, as, as a response to the heresy of Catharism. And he encourages um, St. Francis and the foundation of the Franciscans uh, as, as a response to the general frustration about the, about the lack of, of genuine apostolic poverty and zeal and simplicity uh, in the clergy. So, so he's got a great sense for how to, how to, how to disentangle the, destructive elements of, of, of the social forces of the time and, and re-harness them to, to the propagation of the gospel. So he, he's a very great man in St. Third. And um, so, yeah, Lateran IV is the single greatest council of the Middle Ages. It begins with a, uh, a, a great big creed, um, uh, which, uh, which is, is, deals with a lot of doctrinal questions. It's, you're often surprised to see that, that some key question like the the attributes of God, uh, or, or how God is noble and stuff, it ends up actually being dealt, having been dealt with by Lateran IV. Um, and um, so it, uh, it, it makes it clear what we mean by uh, the seen and unseen uh, of, of the Nicene Creed. It talks about it means the incorporeal angels and the visible creation. Uh, it, it, it makes it clear that a very important definition that that, and, and you can see this is coming from the, the much greater intellectual sophistication of the West now with the rise of the universities, um, the, that uh, whatever we assert about God, he is more unlike than he is like. It's a very important principle uh, in, in the unknowability of God, uh, which we talked about a little bit when we were talking about iconoclasm mm -hmm. and, and Nicaea too. Um, uh, it deals with a, um, a heresy promoted inadvertently by this abbot called uh, Joachim of Fiore, who caused, he seems to be a holy guy, uh, but he caused a lot of trouble inadvertently one way or another. He, sees, he had this, this error about the Trinity, that the Godhead, the divine, the divine substance, was somehow a kind of substratum on which the three divine persons were sort of built, which is definitely wrong in a big way but it was just because he wasn't that great at the metaphysics so so they're actually saying that he was a lovely guy and we're not trying to diss him but you know he was definitely wrong about this and you're not allowed to hold this so so they, they deal with that um and yeah, um, i don't listen to a thing he says <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he um he the other problem that Joachim caused is he had loads of private revelations um in which he appeared to see in advance the coming of the franciscans and the dominicans and he, so he became very popular, particularly with the Franciscans and the Dominicans, but or particularly with the Franciscans. And he was very strong about, you know, the, the radical poverty of the Franciscans, which is true, but, but very rapidly, uh, even during the lifetime of St. Francis, there wasn't a lot of actual radical poverty going along with many of the Franciscans. And uh, so the Franciscans had a torrid time, you know, even though they achieved so many wonderful things through the Middle Ages, they also had all these terrible disputes of, of very bitter 
Franciscans who wanted to live the genuine ideal of St. Francis and were being prevented from doing so by the luxurious lifestyle of the other Franciscans. And, and, and yeah, Franciscan politics in the Middle Ages is, is you know, it's like trying to understand Somalia or something. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> so, so but that, that's not dealt with by the council. The council just dealt, deals with, with the problem about, about Joachim. Um, then it has some pretty ferocious stuff backing up the Albigensian Crusade. So they basically say, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the crusading armies uh, with full crusading indulgence need to get rid of this her these heretical regimes from southern France. Um, uh, and not only uh, rulers who are shown to have actually embraced these heresies, but the ones who are just not doing anything about them after due warning are to be stripped of their authority. And basically, whoever gets rid of them can keep uh, the, the titles and lands uh, of the heretical rulers. It's a great principle. We might have wanted to apply that to the Reformation, but anyway, um, and uh, the um, uh, but um, so, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so so it leads it, it leads, it's, it's pretty brutal. The Albigensian Crusade, yes, it's not for the squeamish, um, uh, and um, but um, yes, yeah, so, so they they uh, they also have various things. What to do about the overlapping rights in the East? Uh, because of the fact that the Latins had brought their own clergy with them and they'd, they'd introduced a Latin patriarch in, in, in Antioch and Jerusalem and stuff like this. And now, unfortunately, in Constantinople, after this uh, disastrous takeover of Constantinople by the Fourth Crusade. Um, and in fact, it's funny, the, the, fourth, the fourth Latin Council finally uh, allows that Constantinople be the second ranking bishop in the church after all these centuries of, of resisting that they finally allow this of course it's the, the Byzantines are hardly pleased by this because at this point a they always assumed that was the case anyway and just ignore the fact that the popes didn't agree to it um, and uh, b uh, what they what the Latin form means by the patriarch Constantinople is some Venetian cleric uh, who is now is now practicing the Roman rite in the Hagia Sophia so it's hardly you know great news yay for the Byzantines but it's actually it's remained the law of the church to this day so if you look in the in the uh, code of canons for the eastern churches uh, the canon on the patriarchates it says the second it says that the eastern patriarchs after the pope outrank all the other bishops in the entire catholic church in the following order constantinople alexandria antioch jerusalem so the so the um so so it's, it's remained the case to this day um and of course eventually the, the byzantines do get constantinople back um uh they um uh let's think um they they a lot of the secular clergy, there's loads and loads and loads of canons. So we can go through them all, but but the uh, the secular clergy, uh, oh, they, they uh, the term transubstantiation is canonized for the first time. Oh, really? Uh, by Lateran IV, because of course, again, because throughout the 12th century they've been trying to work out exactly what happens with all the sacraments and what you need to make it work and all that kind of thing. So the technical sense of of exactly what's happening uh, has been is is worked out, and again the uh the the apostolic churches uh even the ones that aren't, aren't in communion with rome uh, have agreed to the doctrine of transubstantiation uh even though it was only worked out in the 12th century um although the the, the byzantine the the orthodox schismatic byzantines sort of big grudging about it they don't really want to admit that we got it right because they like <laughs> to disagree with us if they can yeah. and um and so there's i think there's one school that says we don't believe in transubstantiation 
what we believe in is meta-usiosis, right, which is just transubstantiation in Greek. Um, and uh, anyway, um, uh, so the so yeah, transubstantiation gets canonized. Um, and um, uh, tum, 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 um, uh, the um, oh yes, famously the rule that you must get uh, go to communion around Easter mm -hmm. at least once a year, and um, and that you must go to confession once a year. Um, is is introduced by Lateran four, and again, this is a way of kind of keeping an eye on who's actually in the church. You know, who's a Catholic in good standing, and 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 right up until the twentieth century, in some places, um, I saw one of these once. A guy I was doing some research on for my PhD years ago. I was I, I came across his little card, which proved that he'd been to communion, and he'd been to confession and received communion at Easter or thereabouts that year proved he was a Catholic in good standing. And um, I mean, we desperately need to reintroduce this because I mean, this is what allows you to say, oi, dodgy politician, go and fix the terrible things you've done and then you can come back and get your little card, get out. Um, uh, and so, so having got rid of that is, has really, and, and it's really created this sense, you know, that like everybody's entitled to receive communion mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, I privately oppose genocide, but you know, publicly i think it's great um and uh, so i mean you know yeah um and uh, so let's think oh yes they, they launch attempt to launch another crusade uh which is a long story as to what comes of that um uh, which we haven't got time for um and uh, so i mean it's it's a huge uh, and then oh yeah the the secular clergy are fed up to the back teeth of all these new religious orders so this idea of uh, of, 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 of from coming from Charlemagne's time that basically you've got to be a Benedictine unless you follow the rule of St. Augustine in which case you're a canon and that's it folks uh, the, the only variety consists in how rigorously you follow your, your Benedictine charism whether or not you focus on what issue or focus on poverty and that was the big rivalry between the Cistercians and the, and the Cluniacs um, but, but over the course of the 12th century there's loads of, 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 of different forms of religious life have developed and of course in, in the decade before the Fourth Lateran Council the Franciscans and Dominicans have emerged so the secular clergy are think uh, really irritated by these religious orders because you know especially the ones that are under papal supervision because they're immune from the authority of the bishop to a large extent and it's just seen as as, as vexatious on the part of the secular clergy. so there's big pressure to to stop the proliferation of new forms of religious life and so it's a little bit like what happens at trent with the with the mass they say right that's it no more so if you want to found a new religious house find a rule that's already been written and follow that okay no new weird and wonderful religious orders that's it so what they mean by that of course is they don't actually mean you can't have new abbeys or even new organizations of religious what they mean is you, you can't have a new form you've got to pick one of the existing forms and uh, so all the ones which so just like with the different usages of the roman rite that happens with trent and, and Pius v uh, that, that you can any usage that can be proved to have existed for 200 years continuously is still allowed but you're not allowed any new nothing nothing new can emerge if you if, if you've come into existence recently you have to adopt the 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 right of Pius V right so which is just a conservative form of the Roman right um so uh so they do the same thing with religious orders basically you get this idea from this point onwards that 
um, uh, that if you're an old, really old order, that's fine. You know, you're the, you're the Knights Hospitaller or you're the, or you follow the rule of St. Columbanus or something, that's great, knock yourself out. But if you come into existence since 1215, you've got to choose one of the existing ones. And, and they get this idea, basically, there's four you can pick from. Uh, the rule of St. Basil, the rule of St. Benedict, the rule of St. Augustine, and the rule of St. Francis just squeak scrapes in there. And the Dominicans don't have their own rule because they never worked out a rule for themselves. August, uh, Dominic himself was an Augustinian canon. So having not made it in time with a, with a rule of their own before Lateran IV, they're like, well, we'll just stick with the rule of St. Augustine because that's St. Dominic's rule anyway. So, so, so the Dominicans to this day follow the rule of St. Augustine. But all of this is broken down over the centuries since Lateran IV rather like with the you know the the easter communion um uh, uh i always think you know going back to whatever lateran four did is is a sure recipe for rest for reform and restoration in the church um and and they've basically allowed in loads of new religious orders uh, since then sometimes they don't call they give slightly technically different canonical name but it makes no actual difference or or their what their rule is is called constitutions instead constitutions are supposed to be sort of bylaws that clarify what you do, how you follow the rule but if they've been used as a trojan horse to allow in rules after 1215 um so so yeah and, and a lot of these new religious orders have not not been quite the wonderful blessings that they might have been but we won't go into details um and uh, so so i think if we'd stuck to the latter and four um rules then uh, i think that might have been uh, rather more successful so um so yes so so there we're kind of we've reached the kind of high point of the i'm afraid it's kind of downhill from now on we've reached the reached the high point of uh of the the, the march of, of 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 christian triumph here comes the roller coaster part yes indeed uh, so there we are with innocent the third in enthroned in glory amidst uh, innumerable multitude of bishops thundering forth his wise laws and dispatching crusades left right and center and knocking crowns off the heads of kings until they apologize i mean uh john the john king john of england actually surrendered the kingdom of england to the pope so until the reformation it was even henry VIII mentioned this he still believed this until he decided that um uh, Anne Boleyn had a rather shapely calf. Um, uh, he, uh, he, he actually, as he himself believed, he told Thomas More, to Thomas More's surprise, that uh, 10 years before the Reformation, he said, he said, you know, we receive our crown from the Pope because John had surrendered his crown to Innocent III in, in terror at Innocent III's interdict, which he had imposed on England uh, for John, John's naughtiness. Um, so, so, I mean, yeah, Innocent III was, you know, the Pope on steroids. Yeah. And 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 Latter and Four was the kind of ecclesiastical climax of the Middle Ages. There we are. A deep moment of silence. Yes. <laughs> Breathe in, inhale. Look back. Appreciate it, man. We'll talk to you for the next one. Great. God bless. Bye bye.